Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to know that Jesus, our Savior, is no longer in that grave, but is risen from the dead. Lord, we pray that you would be at work within us this morning as we open your word, as we look at these truths from John chapter 11. Oh God, that you would speak to us, that you would change us, that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see more of you, more of both the truth and the glory of this wonderful gospel message and of the Savior who is the sum and substance of the gospel. So please, Lord, cause these truths that we're going to read to find a place in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever played hide-and-seek with a young child, then uh, you know that quite often a lot of the places that they think are a good place to hide actually aren't very good places to hide at all. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is when one of my children once hid behind the curtains of our dining room and thought that we couldn't see her. Uh, however, she made one critical error, and that is that she only hid her head behind the curtains. So I guess she thought that you know, as long as her head was behind the curtains and she couldn't see us, that we wouldn't be able to see her either. Unfortunately uh, for her, though, that is really the way things work. And yet that's uh, a pretty understandable mistake for a young child to make in hide-and-seek. But the interesting thing is that there are some areas in which adults can sometimes do something similar to that as well. When it comes to certain subjects, we often seem to assume that if we just don't think about it, then maybe, if we're lucky, we'll never have to encounter them or, or deal with them. And the subject that I'm thinking of in particular is the subject of death. People often seem to imagine that if we simply avoid thinking about death or talking about death, then maybe it won't happen to us. Now, of course, on some level, we understand that's not true, but many of us nevertheless go through life essentially in denial about our own mortality. In fact, several decades ago, an anthropologist named Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book entitled The Denial of Death, in which he argues that the fear of death haunts us like nothing else. In fact, according to Becker, virtually everything we do is ultimately an intellectual and emotional defense mechanism against the knowledge that we'll all one day die. The totality of human civilization, he says, is basically an elaborate attempt to live in denial of our own mortality. Now, whether or not you're prepared to go as far as Becker does in his conclusions, it's plainly apparent that he's right about at least one thing. And that is that we really don't like to uh, talk about or even think about death. It makes us feel profoundly uncomfortable. 
Yet it's a reality that we all have to face. It's a hard pill to swallow, really. But the reality, dear friends, is that in a hundred years, every single person in this room will almost certainly be dead. And as if that weren't enough, we'll also, we're also forced throughout the duration of our lives to endure the deaths of many people whom we know and love. Uh, I imagine all of us have lost friends and family members who we miss dearly and whose deaths we grieve. You know, there really are few things in life that are more difficult than working through the feelings of grief that we feel at the loss of a loved one. And as we turn our attention to the main passage of Scripture we'll be focusing on today, John 11, 1 through 44, we see that we're not the only ones who have a difficult time dealing with death. In John 11, we read about the death of a man named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was one of Jesus' friends, and so were Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And when Lazarus became sick, Jesus was traveling in a region called Galilee. And so Mary and Martha sent word to him that Lazarus was very ill. But in verses 5 and 6 of John 11, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, why would he do that? Why do you think that Jesus would delay? Well, as we're going to see further down in the passage, he had a purpose. The passage then records that Jesus eventually did go down to the town where Lazarus was and discovered that his friend had already died. Verses 17 through 22. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha, the sister of Lazarus, is obviously grieving and also wishing that Jesus had been there so that Jesus could have performed some sort of miracle and kept Lazarus alive. Jesus then comforts her in verses 23 through 27. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That statement, by the way, is one of the most direct statements about Jesus' identity that we find in the Gospel of John. The story then continues in verses 8, 28 through 35. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, 
saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So notice throughout this passage how people respond to the death of Lazarus. You know, not surprisingly, of course, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are grieving his death. But in verse 35, we see that Jesus also has some feelings of, of grief that he's working through. It says, quite simply, Jesus wept. In his humanity, Jesus felt the full range of human emotions, including grief and sadness and heartache. And there's a good reason why everyone in this passage is grieving the death of Lazarus, and for that matter, why we also respond to death in the very same way. We instinctively sense that death is profoundly unnatural. No matter how much we try to tell ourselves that it's okay and that death is just a, a part of the natural ebb and flow of the universe, I'm not sure anyone actually believes that. I think we all sense that death is profoundly unnatural. That there's something terribly wrong about death. That it's, it's a very unnatural plague on the human race. And the Bible actually explains why we have that instinctual aversion to death. Going back all the way to the very beginning of the Bible. And we learn in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis that Originally, God created this world to be a place of wonderful goodness and peace and harmony. There was no such thing as evil or sickness or pain or death. Those things were nowhere to be found in God's original creation. Instead, the first humans, Adam and Eve, were able to enjoy the perfect goodness of God's creation and even commune with God himself in a beautiful paradise called the Garden of Eden. Unfortunately, though, it didn't last. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and in so doing plunged all of creation into a state of terrible brokenness, dysfunction, suffering, and ultimately death. All of this was God's judgment on the human race, a judgment that we fully deserved, by the way. And just as we would expect a human judge to uphold justice by punishing a criminal, God upholds his standard of divine justice by punishing humanity. So that's why we experience death. It's a consequence of humanity's rebellion against God. Death isn't okay, 
It's not natural. And it wasn't a part of God's original creation. And again, just about everybody can sense that in their heart. Right? Every single one of us feels in our heart that death is an unnatural plague on the human race. And it actually gets even worse because not only will we face physical death one day, we'll also face what the Bible calls the second death, a spiritual and eternal death separated from God. That's what we commonly call hell. So then what should we do to all of this? We're facing death and we can't escape it, right? That's our situation. No matter what healthy habits we try to develop for our lives and you know, exercising and eating right, and no matter what new medicines come onto the market and what new medical treatments become available, all of that is just prolonging the inevitable, right? There's no preventing death. And so what can we do? Well, we can choose the approach that we talked about earlier, I suppose, which is essentially to try to live in denial uh, that death is coming. You know, we can strive to, to just make the most of every day and to live life to its fullest and, and try to the best of our ability to just not think about what we know deep down is coming. That's really, I guess, all there is to do if you're following the path that many in our society seem to be following. Yet I'd like to suggest that that approach is just utterly inadequate. It kind of reminds me of uh, maybe being forced to jump out of an airplane with nothing but a plastic shopping bag <laughs> and holding that shopping bag over our head in a desperate attempt to, to uh, slow down our fall and, and just trying our best as we're plummeting to the ground to, to just comfort ourselves and you know, maybe think some positive thoughts, you know, get some positive thinking going on and, and uh, just try not to think about what's going to happen when we hit the ground. But guys, I'm sorry. I, for one, just have no desire to do that, to approach things in that way. And thankfully, the Bible says we don't have to. You see, the Bible offers us something more than the nonsensical advice and the shallow cliches that our society offers us in order to deal with death. The Bible offers us hope real hope, substantive hope, certain hope. And that hope, dear friends, is found in Jesus. Continuing on in John 11, look at what we read in verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. 
So Jesus shows his divine power by miraculously raising Lazarus from the dead. He's the one who, after all, originally gave life to all humanity at the very beginning and who also has the ability to restore life when somebody dies. And that's what he does here with Lazarus. And the reason Jesus performs this miracle isn't just because he misses his friend Lazarus or because he wants to do uh, Martha and Mary a favor. No, Jesus is demonstrating through this miracle the truth of what he told Martha back in verses 25 and 26. Um, That statement we encountered earlier is really the key to this whole passage. The whole passage revolves around what Jesus tells Martha. Again, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the main idea of the entire passage that we see in these verses is that through Jesus, death has been defeated. Through Jesus, death has been defeated. See, even though we'll all still face physical death one day, we can be victorious and triumphant over death in an ultimate sense. We'll die bodily, but not spiritually. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 26 that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Instead, death will be more like a a transition into a kind of life that's more glorious and wonderful than any we've ever known before, and that will never end. That's what Jesus raising Lazarus is all about. Jesus came not just to raise Lazarus from physical death, but to raise all of us from spiritual death and to rescue us. And notice in verse 25 that Jesus doesn't just say, I'll bring about the resurrection or I'll accomplish the resurrection. No, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Think about that. Resurrection from the dead and eternal life with God in heaven are inseparable from Jesus. It's almost like they're fused to his very identity. There's no resurrection and eternal life in heaven apart from the person of Jesus. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Also, in saying this, Jesus is using the phrase, I am, in a very deliberate way. This is actually one of the seven I am statements, as they're sometimes called, in the Gospel of John. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And, of course, there's plenty of rich meaning bound up in each one of these metaphors that we don't really have time to get into. But it's no accident that Jesus uses 
this phrase, I am, on each of these occasions. In the Old Testament, I am is the sacred name by which God identified himself. In Exodus 14, when Moses asks God what his name is, God says to him, I am who I am. God then tells Moses to say to the rest of the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So the name I am speaks of God's self-sufficiency and self-existence and sets him apart as the only being in the entire universe whose existence isn't contingent on anyone else. He alone is the uncaused cause and the one from whom everything else in this universe derives its existence. So when Jesus makes these I am statements in the Gospel of John, he's making, don't make no mistake, he's making a claim to being God himself. And as God, Jesus is supreme over all things, even as we see here in John 11, over death itself. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. And yet in order to truly and fully triumph over death, Jesus would have to experience death himself. Because remember, death is the result of sin, right? So in order to defeat death, Jesus would have to deal with sin. And he did that by dying on the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered in our place, enduring the judgment that our sins deserved. You know, the Bible says that, that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, meaning that, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross paid the debt to God the Father's justice that we owed. Essentially, Jesus endured death so that we could enjoy life. Again, Jesus endured death so that we could enjoy life. And then after Jesus died on the cross and was buried in the tomb for three days, the Bible says that he resurrected from the dead, right? That's what we're celebrating today on Easter. And the reason that's such a magnificent cause for celebration is that Jesus' resurrection means that we also can share in his triumph over sin and death and experience a kind of resurrection ourselves. His resurrection is a foretaste and a foreshadow of what will eventually happen to us. You might compare it to a, a prototype, let's say. I'm sure we've probably all seen pictures of these shiny new prototypes, super cool futuristic prototypes that automakers love to display in auto shows all around the world. The point of a prototype, of course, is to show what's coming. And that's the point of the resurrection as well. In the resurrection of Jesus, God was displaying to the world what's in store for his people. The resurrection is a picture 
of what God will do with countless others all around the world as he raises them up and gives to them glorified resurrection bodies. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who have died. The term first fruits refers to the first sample of an agricultural crop that would indicate what the rest of that crop would be like. Similarly, Jesus' resurrection foreshadows our resurrection. See, contrary to popular imagination, heaven isn't going to be a place of disembodied spirits just kind of floating around out there and maybe strumming on a harp, right? Rather, it's a place where God's people will have glorified resurrection bodies and enjoy what the Bible refers to as a new creation, also called in Scripture a new heavens and new earth. In many ways, it'll be like the Garden of Eden 2.0, a perfect paradise in which we'll get to enjoy unending pleasures in the presence of God himself. And one important element that'll make it even better than the original Garden of Eden is that there won't be any possibility of sin. Our hearts will be filled with nothing but perfect love for God and one another throughout all eternity. And not only will there be no more sin, there will also be no more death. Death will be nothing but a faint and distant memory. That's what those of us who are Christians have to look forward to. And ultimately, what we celebrate on Easter. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it in the Chronicles of Narnia. He says it's as if our earthly lives have many different stories. But when we get to heaven, that's the real story. And when we arrive in heaven, we're only at the beginning of the real story. He says it's as if everything else we experience in this world is just the title and the cover page. And that when we get to heaven, to quote Lewis directly, we'll be beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's something I can't wait to be a part of, an existence in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is the hope Jesus offers us. Yet the Bible is very clear that not everyone will experience this. Only those who turn away from their sins and put their trust in Jesus will experience the benefits of what he's accomplished. You know, we, we have to come to that point where we recognize that there is nothing that we can do to get right with God through our own efforts. No matter how hard we try, we can never earn God's favor or merit eternal life. Instead, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. 
You know, the day's coming when you will experience physical death. You can't escape it. It's coming. And so the question that you should be asking yourself this morning is, am I ready for that? Like, am I ready to die and stand before God and face the ultimate reckoning? That day is coming. Are you ready? Have you put your trust in Jesus to do for you what you can never do for yourself and to rescue you from your sin? Those who trust in Jesus are able to look forward to the end of this earthly pilgrimage, not with fear, but with confident hope and joyful anticipation. I recently came across a a Facebook page called Brooklyn's Journey Home. Um, In the intro to the page, Brooklyn invites us to uh, join me on my journey through hospice to heaven. Uh, Brooklyn, as we learn, is a 25-year-old young woman from Colorado who has an extremely rare disease in which her body's connective tissue is essentially too stretchy and uh, deals with severe comorbidities as well related to her nervous system immune system and digestive system. So in a manner of speaking, actually in Brooklyn's own words, her body is literally falling apart. The first post on the page is dated December 28th of last year. Brooklyn writes, I recently left my doctor's office with a referral to hospice. Hospice is end-of-life care. Over the last two years of battling my connective tissue disorder, my health has been in a downward spiral. Specialist after specialist has given up or pushed me aside. All treatments have failed. I have fought very hard for a very long time. With much prayer, godly counsel, and medical advice, God has made the way forward clear. It's time to go home. Honestly, I left my doctor's office with a giant smile on my face. My heart is overjoyed contemplating being in the fullness of God's glory. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Conversely, I have been grieving with friends and family as they must say goodbye. Death is awful, but for the believer, it's just the beginning. We will start the process of taking me off of medications on January 17th. I will die by the end of February. Please pray for comfort for my grieving family and friends. Please also pray that I will run the rest of my race well. I desire to run tenaciously until the very end, not lagging in the last miles, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Fast forward to January 20th. I have two feeding tubes in my abdomen and a bunch of other things in this picture. However, our state of well-being doesn't need to be dictated by circumstances. People ask me why I'm so joyful. Any divine peace or contentment is supplied through the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Through strength supplied by the Spirit, the believer can take on a stance of perpetual thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. There are many things to be thankful for. Clean water, central heating, cat videos. Uh, Apart from gratefulness for physical blessings, the believer can find comfort in taking on an eternal perspective. When we focus on our future, eternal hope in Jesus, 
1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, the downfalls of this world are minuscule. In the absence of necessities, the hope of our heavenly inheritance in Christ remains. Colossians 1, 5. Salvation stands. Nothing can take away a believer's assurance of eternal glory. Jude 24. Moving ahead to February 2nd. I feel like I'm on the spinning teacup ride at Disney. Uh, constantly, without having to pay to ride, without the option to get off. My world is spinning, but not out of control. I am getting worse, but everything is according to plan. God's plan. Uh, February 8th, uh, Brooklyn was taken off of nutrition support as a part of her hospice plan of care. Uh, she then writes a few days after that on February 14th, the only thing I like about being malnourished is how it makes me rely on Jesus. Jesus says that he is my bread of life, John 6. Without actual bread, I'm pushed to rely on God's promise of being my spiritual sustenance, Matthew 4, 4. He always provides exactly what I need, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. It may not be what I think I need, like the ability to eat, but it's always what I do need. For example, a lesson in faith, a special moment with him, or time to meditate on his character, Psalm 63, 6 through 8. Even when my physical sustenance is absent, God always provides my daily bread, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Through his presence and perfect provision, if I have Jesus, I have all I need, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And then Brooklyn's final post on February 22nd. As I wait for my last breaths, I've been reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The apostles' descriptions of Jesus' crucifixion are a gut punch for anyone. Now, dying myself, the description of how my Savior died is so much more potent. It leaves me in awe of a God who was born into flesh, willing to die in brutality and rise again for the sin of humanity. Jesus didn't just die. I'm dying in a bougie, adjustable pillow-top bed. He died naked and exposed amongst criminals. I get kind notes and cards from friends and strangers alike. He was hurled insults and abuse. My best friends visit me. His abandoned him, denying even knowing him. Every step of this process makes me even more elated over the gift of salvation. And then on March 1st, just seven weeks ago, approximately from today, the page had a post by Broken Sister announcing that she had gone to be with Jesus. So as you can see, even at the age of 25, Brooklyn was able to, have, to, to even move toward the day of her death which was imminent, with real hope and peace and joy. Because, not of some positive thinking technique, but because of her relationship with Jesus. Do you have that relationship? Are you able to look forward to what the future holds with the same level of confidence and joy that Brooklyn displayed. 
This Easter, we celebrate that through Jesus, death has been defeated. And his victory can be our victory as we put our trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about the things and the truths we encounter in John chapter 11, Lord, we acknowledge that these are weighty things. This is, this is not a light subject, a light text, or a light sermon. There's a weight to it. And yet, Lord, we, we thank you that even when we're dealing with the weightiest matters that we could ever think about, the subject of eternity, Lord, I thank you that we are able to approach that not with shallow cliches or vain hope, but a hope that is real and substantive, Lord. I want to pray for anyone here who does not yet have the confidence that we saw Brooklyn display. Lord, I pray that today, even, that you would lead them to Christ, Lord, that they would see their need for a Savior and that they would run to Christ as their only hope of rescue, Lord. Please, Lord, bring them to true repentance and faith, even today. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to, uh, to have our hope strengthened, Lord, that, that we would be able to live, through, uh, to live our lives with an eternal perspective. Use us during the days you have given us on this earth, to make an impact for you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.